We're taught when it comes to real estate that the only thing that matters is location, right? Location, location, location. It's the only thing that matters. We know this. Some of us are in real estate. Some of us have just bought homes. Uh, all of us have some, found somewhere to live, be it apartments, be it houses. And like, where's the location? Because that makes such a profound impact on the value of the home. And the location greatly determines the potential of that property, what it could become, what it's worth. Right? You can have a mansion, the world's nicest house, but if it's in a bad area of town, it's just not worth anything. Or you can have an absolute shack, but if it's on the beach, in Truro, on the Cape, that thing's worth a million bucks. And it is run down and probably needs you know, $200,000 worth of repairs just to live in it. But because of the location, that determines what kind of value this property has. It's not the only thing, right? If you have a shack next to a mansion in the same neighborhood, obviously the mansion's worth more, but the location is such a determiner of what the value is, what the potential is of a property. So why is that? Well, it's because a certain location brings certain advantages. It brings certain opportunities, certain resources. If you live in that shack on the beach, you're never going to be in the shack anyway. You're going to be out on the beach. That's why you're there. So who cares what the shack looks like? You're going to be on the beach. So you can swim if there aren't too many sharks in the water. You can swim on the Cape and enjoy it. If your house is a mansion or a shack, but it's you know, up in New Hampshire, or it's in Colorado or Utah, you can ski to your heart's content all winter long because the location gives you access to those opportunities, those resources. And if you live in Florida, you're not going to be doing much skiing. And if you live in Alaska, you're not going to be doing much swimming. The location determines, greatly determines the potential. I think it's really similar with people as well. I think our potential is greatly, greatly determined by our location. It's not the only thing that determines it, but our location is such a huge impact on what our potential could be. Take the same person, you know, genius-level IQ intelligence, and put them in a rural, tribal village anywhere in the world without access to education, without access to opportunity, without access to finances, and what's the potential for that mind and that person to grow into? It's limited by their location. Take that same exact person and have them born into a wealthy family that spares no expense, the best schools in the best countries around the world, and what's the potential for that person? You know, it's the mansion, but in terms of people, and you put mansion in one place or another, the, the location determines the potential so, so much. Now, not exclusively, right? America is kind of known for its opportunity, and so anyone born within America technically has opportunities to advance themselves if they work hard and to take that God-given intelligence and ability and make something of themselves. But even within America, if you're born in Appalachia or on Native American Indian Reservation or in an urban area, inner city, you might have all those abilities, but you're going to have to fight to get to the locations that have the resources because your natural location, where you were born into, doesn't have it. It's not there. So still, even within America, the location matters. It's just because we're part of a bigger country. You can kind of migrate. You can fight your way out, tooth and nail, to get to the location where those resources are, where those opportunities are. You want to raise your children in a place with good schools, and so you move your family to a town, and the market and the value of those homes are based on how good the 
school system is and how close it is to a major city or to highways. You see where I'm going with this, right? It's the same for people as it is for properties. Think about where you were born. Think of yourself as a valuable commodity. Did your location at birth give you access to all of these resources? If it didn't, did you go and find those resources wherever they existed and, and go to that place? This is a story of many of us, maybe most of us. The amazing thing about Christmas and this season, the most amazing thing about it, is that it embodies the concept of relocation. Relocation. Because God, who was in the prime location with access to all the resources, knowing all things, capable of all things, did not stay in that location. He relocated himself to live among the people who were in need so that he could bring his resources to them. We fight to leave our location to go to some place that the resources are better. Have you ever thought that if we're to emulate God, we, might, we may be challenged or called to take the resources we have and relocate to bring those blessings to the people who need them more than we? We're constantly in the upward mobile, getting better, a better home, bup, bup, bup. God's in the best house, in the best neighborhood, with the fattest bank accounts and the most power in the world, and he relocates into the slums of earth from the glory of heaven. It's a profoundly unhuman thing to do. And that's why when we see people, maybe like Mother Teresa, relocate herself into places of need and take her advantages, which she was born into, in her location, and bring those to people in need, it's profound. Most of us get away from the problems to get to the better. God chose to do the exact opposite. He went from the best and came to the lowest, humbled himself for the good of the people that he came to serve. Jacob last week introduced us to this topic of incarnation and this whole Advent season, that's what we're talking about. Incarnation, God became man. That's the ultimate relocation. It's the ultimate act of relocation. God into man. Not just God staying God, but God becoming less to bless. It's awesome. It's awesome. And I think that what we're going to see in Scripture is that this is not just God's model. This is what he calls his people to emulate as well. It is the gospel message to take the good news and bring it. To take the love and the power of God and go and share it. It's incarnation. And so I want to focus on incarnation as relocation this Sunday. Now, the reason that word is fresh in my mind is because of the book that I'll hold up here, which you can't see, which is down in my office, which I forgot to bring up. And the book's title is Making Neighborhoods Whole by Gordon and Perkins. Now, these two amazing gentlemen founded back in the 70s an organization called Christian Community Development Association, CCDA, the Christian Community Development Association. So instead of being a church, in the sense that like, they gather people together to worship God, they look to mobilize Christians to develop the community around them. So to, to fix up 
um, everything from homes to racial divides. And been, it started in Chicago in the 70s, you know, in an effort for Christians to address the racial situation there, and it kind of expanded. And now it's a national organization that Christians from any part of denomination, any church can participate in, in an effort to renew their areas. So when we do things like outreaches, we're, we're participating in community development. We fix up a home, you're developing your community. When you do uh, an outreach, you know, on the streets, what you're developing that community in such a way that would follow this model that they've come up with. Christian Community Developer Association. I encourage you to look, at, look it up online, learn more about it. It's an amazing group. And the book, Making Neighborhoods Whole, the first three chapters of it are just the history of that organization. It's just fascinating to read how it kind of came about, how God blessed it. But then the rest of the chapters lay out their, their tenets, their key values in the organization. And they have what they call the three R's. Relocation, redistribution, and reconciliation. Those are their core, and they've got seven altogether, but those are what they've been based on. And so those words kept coming back to my mind as I was thinking about this Christmas season and about preaching. I was thinking about incarnation. When God becomes man, he's incarnate, becomes flesh. Isn't that relocation? He's relocating from heaven. But what about redistribution? God's developing earth. He's redistributing his gifts and his love to the people on earth to raise them up to know him. So redistribution is absolutely what incarnation and then the crucifixion is and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit's perfect redistribution. And then how about reconciliation? So obviously, God's effort to bind us back together with him despite the fact that we sin. So those three R's kind of inspired me and made me want to explore with you what incarnation looks like in terms of each of those three words. And so that's what we're doing this Advent season. Today we're going to take relocation, then we'll go through the other two R's the next couple of Sundays, and just think more and more, what is incarnation? What does it mean for God to become man? What does it mean for us to be incarnational? So I'm going to say a word of prayer. We're going to open our Bibles to the Gospel of John, and we are going to see what God has to say about this. Let's pray. God, you are a God who shows up, you are a God who acts, you are a God who arrives on the scene and does things, you are a God who speaks the word and things come to be, you are a God who transforms, you are a God who revitalizes and restores, you are a God who's alive and active and moving, who cares deeply about us and is filled with compassion. And with those motivations, Father... We thank you for your incarnation. We thank you for your birth. Your son given to us for our good, not for yours, for our good. Please speak to us about what that can mean for us this morning. And may we be more like you and become more like you through this Advent and Christmas season. I love you, Father. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, John chapter 1, please. Open up your Bibles. There are Bibles under your seats. There's also Bibles uh, on your phones and everywhere else. And if you want to just listen, that's fine as well. The advantage of bringing your Bible from home is you can make notes. It's not sacrilegious to make notes in your Bible. It's actually encouraged. Please circle a word that speaks to you because 40 years from now, 20 years from now, five years from now, you're in a completely different space, learning different lessons, serving in different ways. You're going to look back and be like, oh, I remember that verse. I remember when that really like opened my eyes to a part of God that I had never realized before. Uh, your apps will come and go, and you can't just make a little sketch or an arrow or something easily in the text. So 
I prefer the Bible, and I encourage you to write in the ones you bring from home. Maybe not so much the one you took out from under the seat, but hey, if it's a good verse, just circle it. It'll be good for the next person who reads it, too. John chapter 1. All right, this is the story of the incarnation. It talks about Jesus. It talks about God the Father. It talks about John the Baptist, who kind of ushered in Jesus. He was the foreshadowing, you know, the predecessor, the, the lead in, paving the way. And it talks about the world and the world's relationship to God and Jesus and how that kind of played itself out. So I am going to read verses 1 through 18, and then we're, we're going to talk about it together. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now there was a man... Not just the word, now there's a man. Now there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world, you know, entering into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world didn't know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the key verse in it all. I'm going to read that again. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. There's the location dwelt, lived among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. He's full of grace and truth. Now John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Put as many in there as you want. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. That means Jesus has made God be known to us. Verse 19. Oh, actually, no, we're going to stop right there. We're going to stop right there. I keep going forever, but for our topic this morning, stop right there at 18. So the key verses in that is verse 14 and verse 18. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and no one has ever seen God but the only God, Jesus, who is at the Father's side. He has made him, the Father, known. Look at that word in verse 14, dwelt. Get out your highlighters, get out your pen, and circle that. And in your margins, write the word tabernacle. Tabernacle. That is what that word is, but it's not translated that way because it would actually probably confuse this reading. But the meaning of it, the actual word that was chosen by John, Apostle John, as he's writing this, is tabernacle. Let's read it that way. The word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us, and we have seen his glory. 
we all know what the tabernacle is, kind of you know, a biblical word. Maybe you know it, maybe you don't. Maybe you have some memory of some flannel graph in Sunday school when you were like six years old. Tabernacle. Tabernacle is a tent. Right? It's just a tent. But it was a tent that was set up by Moses for a place to worship. So it was the temple before there was ever a temple. It's a portable, temporary temple. And Moses set it up so that he could go in and meet with God, and the glory of God would settle on this tabernacle. And they used this tent while they were wandering. After the Jews came out of Egypt, wilderness for 40 years, they carried this portable temple, temporary temple, everywhere they went. And when they would set it down, the Spirit of God and the glory of God would settle on it. And Moses would go in, he would converse with God, it was his sanctuary. The people would come to it, they would offer their sacrifices there. Eventually, it's where they kept the Ark of the Covenant, it's where they had the Ten Commandments, it's where the priests were, there was an altar out front. It's a temporary place for worship. It's a temporary location on earth for God's spirit to dwell. It's a connection point between heaven and earth. God's in heaven, but when we go to the tabernacle here in the wilderness, wherever we are, we get to experience the glory of God. It's a beautiful place. Beautiful place. And it went with them wherever. Eventually, they go across the Jordan River into the uh, promised land. There's the fighting of all the nations. Eventually, they settle in Jerusalem. And eventually, then the temple is built. So the tabernacle comes to a close when the permanent location of God's worship and glory is established in the promised land. God tabernacled amongst the Jews through the whole wilderness wandering when they were strangers in the land waiting to get home. What a great picture of Jesus. God tabernacling with us while we're strangers in this wilderness waiting to get to the promised land. And when we come to Jesus, he is our place of worship. We see the Holy Spirit and the glory of God. We go to that tabernacle, but it's a temporary sort of thing because it's just meant for this wilderness wandering. Eventually, we're going to get to God's presence face to face, and then the tabernacle was just something that held us over till we could see the real thing. We see God in the face of Christ. We worship through Jesus, not in a building, but through the risen Savior, through his Spirit. So Jesus tabernacling amongst us as this temporary connection between heaven and earth, as God on earth, as a place to go and worship, it's just the perfect word for Jesus. He made his tabernacle in our midst, John says. We watched him. And now Jesus resurrected gives us his spirit. And we come to him. We come to the cross. We come to the empty cross. We come to the Holy Spirit. We come together as believers worshiping as we travel through temporarily to get home. Tabernacle is the perfect word there. And here you can see with that word, relocation. Here you can see incarnation. Incarnation literally means incarnate. Carne means flesh in meat and bones, in flesh incarnation. So the word, which was before everything, Jesus as a spirit with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit together before all things became flesh. So puts on flesh and bones, puts on skin and muscle and sinew, becomes flesh. That's what incarnation means, but it took God's relocation to earth to temporarily dwell here, to give us his spirit so we can have the glory of God that we can gather around and worship 
as we're waiting to get through this place where we are strangers, as we're trying to get home. Our true location is heaven. That's our true home. That's where we're going. And our spirits are sealed with God there. But while we're still living this life, we're just traveling through, trying to get home. So relocation from God's perspective is the incarnation. God the Father was still in heaven when Jesus was here. This word, this creative power of God, became flesh to tabernacle. And my challenge for us this morning is, I don't think this is meant to just be a God thing. I think this is meant to be a Christian thing. All of God's people, I believe, and I'm going to argue as persuasively as I can this morning, all of God's people are supposed to make our dwelling in the midst of this world so that people, through frail, weak sloppy, mistaken-filled people can come to worship God as we dwell in their midst, can come to have a connection point with God, can see the God who no one's ever seen because they can see us and say there's something to them that's more than them. The way I want to challenge us to think about it is in four ways. I think there's four kinds of relocation that I would like to challenge us to think about. Maybe these are our commission. Maybe this Christmas season will challenge us to relocate in certain ways. So as we go through these four ways, would you think about the incarnation, God's relocation for our good, for our benefit, not for his, but for us, and consider what it might mean for you? The first one is physical relocation. This is what God did. He physically relocated himself. He moved to where the people with the needs are. When you look at that um, Christian Community Development Association organization, when they talk about relocation, they're talking primarily about physical relocation. People with resources leaving their comfortable neighborhoods and wealthier environments and moving into poor neighborhoods. It's the opposite of what everybody does. But the benefit is not for the people moving. They're seeking to be like God, to go to people who are in need so that they might be a blessing, take the resources that have been given to them to help those who didn't have that advantage because of the location where they were born. How risky would it feel to sell your home and move into the inner city? How risky would it feel to take your children and put them into the city school system instead of the nice suburban area where many of us, most of us, live? How hard would that be? That risk is nothing compared to the cost that God gave, the price that God paid to become flesh. He gave up way more than that. Do not think that that's beyond the realm of possibility. Do not. Maybe that's exactly what we're being called to do. Move into a bad area to love people there. And again, it's not a logical thing. We're not talking logic here. We're talking gospel. Logic would be for God to look at earth and be like, failed attempt, blink. But he looked and he had compassion. He said, look at these lost people. I need to enter in and just bring my love and my light. 
Physical relocation might be something that you want to consider. Didn't think you were coming to church on Sunday and being told to move into the city, did you? I'm not telling you to move into the city. I'm asking you to open your eyes to what relocation could look to you physically to be in a different spot. Can we apply it to our families as well? It applies. All these things apply a million ways, so I'll give you a sprinkling of ideas because I want you to be thinking about what this means to you. But what would it look like to physically relocate yourself within the family, within your family? Maybe it means that instead of you sitting in your own room watching your own shows, you relocate physically to be in the kids' room watching the kids' shows with them. Because as a parent, you desire to be with them for their good, knowing that your presence will like build them up in a, in a personal identity kind of way that's irreplaceable. Maybe if you and your siblings are apart from each other and growing strained, maybe there needs to be a relocation where you're spending time together. For those spouses that are in difficult places, How often are you physically in the same spot? Maybe you need to relocate yourself physically because the marriage or the siblings or the children or your neighbors or your in-laws or your parents are the people actually who have the need. And by you physically removing yourself from them, you're making your life easier and you're not helping them at all. God could have made his life easier, but he didn't. He relocated himself to the people in need. What would it look like to spend more time with the people that you've been called to love. That's incarnational, and that's physical. It doesn't require the selling of your home, but it requires the moving of you physically, so that all the things that are you, your resources, right? The location is based on the resource. All the things that are you, your thoughts, your experiences, your sense of humor, your energy, your love, your smile, you bring those things with you to the new location. Those people did not have access to any of those things unless you're there and you bring them, because you're the only one that has you. And so you give you. God's the only one that has God, and God gave God, and it was a physical thing to be near the people that he wanted to be near. You know, if you're at odds with someone and you never spend any time together, if there's no proximity, what's the potential? If you live in this location and they live in this location, our locations are greatly determining the potential of that relationship. I would challenge you to relocate, to be in proximity with one another. So there's physical relocation. Uh, The second form of relocation you may want to consider, I may want to consider, is not physical, but it's emotional. Emotional. And there's a few different ways we can think about this. We may want to relocate ourselves out of our comfort zone. Emotionally, we feel safe not talking with our relatives or with our neighbors about our faith. Because like, well, they do their thing, I do my thing. And so we just stay kind of emotionally safe. And so even though we're physically in proximity with people, especially during Christmas holidays, we're not stepping out to like bare our soul or talk about things that are important because we don't want to be rejected. We don't want to make waves. We don't know what people are going to think. There's a safety net. It's all emotional. It's not physical. We can talk about sports and the weather all day long. But maybe God's calling you to relocate out of that emotional safety zone into a place where you're talking about how you feel, how you think, what you believe, with others that you're near, so that you can bring those resources to the table. Isn't it frustrating sometimes? We spend like a whole afternoon with someone, at the end of it, you're like, we didn't really talk about anything. That happens all the time. It happens to me. I know what happens. It's just, it's real. But we have to be thinking, 
I'm half of this conversation. So if I'm in my safety zone, I would have to step out and ask this question. I would have to step out of it over here and make this statement to see where the conversation would go. But uh, no, I like my location better. No waves, no ripples, no weird looks, no repercussions. Just we're good. We're smiling. So maybe God's calling you to relocate emotionally. Think about this in terms of your coworkers. Is it just business, business? Guess what? All of your coworkers are people, too. So they all have problems and joys and hobbies and happiness, and God cares about their soul. So you could treat them as people and just talk about life, share life together. But that would require relocation. We're located in our functional job position, doing our job description. Maybe we relocate ourselves to be a person who's called to love the people at the office. Does this apply to marriage? Sure. You can spend all day, but have you really opened up? This applies to kids. We can be with them, but do they know us? Or are we just busy doing stuff, staying busy, being busy? God may be calling you and me to some emotional relocation. Where we are to be with others emotionally, to feel what they feel. Lee can attest to this with the homeless ministry. There's such a, an ongoing kind of like perpetual um, mission field. You can't just go and snap your fingers and solve the problem for any individual or collectively. Like, oh, I have the cure for homelessness. That's not a thing. Because every different person is different. But by listening and by loving, by hearing, those are emotional things which require physical relocation, bring a lot of hope, a lot of hope comes from having someone near you who's willing to listen and love. That requires physical and emotional relocation. Both feel risky, but that's the point. It's not for us. We're not the mission. We're the missionaries. So maybe one or both of those things would be something that God's calling you to do. How about the third one? Social relocation. Maybe your circle of friends is just not getting you anywhere. But maybe you spend so much time with the same circle of friends that you're not of benefit anywhere else than there. This can be a good circle of friends. It could be you know, a good group of Christian friends. We spend all our time with Christians. Well, what about all the people that don't know about God's love for them, that live right around you? Maybe God would call you to relocate your social circles to someone who you have a heart for. Someone told me a couple of months back that they really have a heart for the people in their town. You know, the friends in town. And so like, going to more uh, Bible studies, there's a couple of Bible studies being offered, like, I don't think I can do this and this and that and that, because my heart really is to be with these people. So there was a social circle transition happening for this person from just being located within Christian social circles to viewing themselves as incarnational, wanting to be God in the world for these other people. And so that comes with a sense of loss because now I'm not just with the people that I know best and like best and like me best and think the same. I'm making a choice for someone else's good because I have a desire. Where are you called to be socially? It can work from a negative to a positive also. You may be in a social circle that's really just not good for you. And so you may try to say, I'm trying to like be a help here and call it, but all it's doing is dragging you down. You find yourself talking like you don't really feel like you should talk, doing things like you don't really feel like you should do, just find yourself thinking and feeling certain ways because that social circle is just pulling at you, pulling at you. Maybe it's time for a different circle of friends. Maybe time for a life change in that way. 
So it can be from a, a positive to a negative, or a negative to a positive, or a hard to an easy, or easy to a hard, but the question is not just where do I spend my time, it's where is God calling me to spend my time. God usually, when he calls someone in scripture, calls them to some place. Abraham, go to the land that I'm telling you, and then I'm going to do all this amazing stuff. I'm going to bless the world through you. Jesus says, go and make disciples. So there's a call, a send to something for a certain purpose. We just want to be wherever God wants us to be, loving whoever he wants us to love. But sometimes that changes. Maybe you've been in the same social circles or the same places for, you know, 10 years or something. Is God calling you to do something different? You don't have to give up friendships to do that, but you do have to step in different directions. Might change how you spend your time, might change how you see yourself. I really challenge you to be in a situation that is not just comfort zone, comfort zone, comfort zone. So this social doesn't necessarily require relocating your home. It doesn't necessarily mean emotional relocation. It just means who are the people that I'm around, and is that where God's calling me to serve? So we said there's four. Here's the last one. Spiritual relocation. The Bible makes it pretty clear that without God, you are not a part of his family. If we do not believe and say, God, yes, you're mine, I'm yours, take my heart, all for you, none for me, just I believe, then we're before God. And after we believe that, whether it's a certain prayer, or whether it's a heart commitment, or whether it's a moment or an event after that, we are with God. Maybe God's calling you to relocate from away from God to locate yourself with God. Maybe you're a person that has been not sure about faith, skeptical about it. Well, then you are not in God's family. You have not yet said, God, I want you. I'm yours. Forgive me. Accept me. Maybe the location switch is going to be from someone who knows about God to someone who actually commits to God. Maybe God will use you with this spiritual relocation for others. But let's not just think because we go to church that we're saved. Let's not just think because we've said some prayers sometimes that we're in God's family. Let's not think just because we've read the Bible, because we have positive feelings about Jesus that we're saved. Until we say, God, I'm yours. Forgive me. I want in. Then we're in. Because it's a kingdom, right? And there's only one way to gain citizenship in this kingdom. You know, we have a problem with immigration in our country. There's no such thing as an illegal immigrant into the kingdom of heaven. You can't sneak the border. It doesn't exist. There's only one proper channel, and it's Jesus. He's the one who hands out forgiveness. All the people in are forgiven. doesn't mean they're perfect. It means they're forgiven. All the people out own their sins. So we all sin. Outside, I own it. Inside, Jesus says, I offer you my forgiveness. So there's only one way to go in. And then once you're in, you live, we serve, we die, we see God. And he's like, you're Christ's, you're mine, you're in. Oh, no illegal immigrants. It's only one path to citizenship. It's confession and love. So, maybe that's where you're at this Christmas season. Maybe you need to spiritually relocate. Maybe you are not with God but need to be. Then I challenge you to take that step. And before you relocate your home and try to relocate yourself physically and try to relocate socially, all that is built upon the fact that we are God's. So if you're not yet spiritually relocated, don't start with these three. Start with this one. And then that makes everything else possible. So I've used the word loss. We're going to wrap up with this. I'll read one more passage for you. Uh, it's from 
Philippians. If you want to follow along, you can. It's Philippians 2. But I've used the word loss, like a sense of loss. If you give up, if you give up your nice home to live in a poor home, in a poor area, if you give up uh, your safety zone, your comfort zone to go in, like put yourself out there, if you give up your, your close circle of friends to be with people you don't know as well, but with the purpose of trying to show love to people that need it, if you're relocating in any of these ways, it could have a sense of loss. But I would challenge you not to think of it as loss, but to think of it as the cost. Whenever you buy something, you know, for the most part, the more expensive it is, the more valuable it is, the more it's worth. If we're willing to pay some of these costs for someone else's sake, how valuable must that person be? If we're willing to relocate our home to an inner city neighborhood, how valuable must those people in that neighborhood be to us? What a, a steep cost. If we're willing to relocate ourselves out of our comfort zone to be there for our children or our family or our coworker or a stranger, how much must those people be worth to us? Because we're paying a dear cost. It's a cost. It's not just a loss, like, oh, it's gone, poof. It's like, I'm willing to put this down as the payment for something that I feel is so valuable. The Bible calls this the cost of discipleship. And when we think about God's cost, he didn't, like, lose his divinity. It's like, oh, where to go? Oh, man, crap, I'm a human now. What am I going to do? And he's like, no, I pay this price because that's how much these people are worth to me. And it's for their good at this price that I humble myself. So Philippians 2 just lays this out perfectly. We'll read the first few verses. I'm going to close with a word of prayer. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, if there is any participation that we have in the Spirit, if we have any affection, any sympathy... Paul writes to the church, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry. You know, it's not us versus them, whoever them are. Do nothing from conceit. That's better. I'm better than them. They're worse than me. Nothing separating above, nothing separating from the side. And we talked about the cross being the crossroads. People who are better and worse can meet in the cross, and people who are left and right meet in the middle. Jesus brings together no rivalry, no conceit. <clears throat> but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So don't just look for what we've got and stay in that prime location. Be looking at the interests of others and considering relocation. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, because even further, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that's what was achieved by the incarnation, God relocating to us. I promise you, God can do things of that glory through you if you're willing to relocate. He can do things of that glory in your neighborhood, in this world, in your jobs, in your marriages, in your relationships, 
with your siblings, with your children, with your parents, with your doubts, with your addictions, with your insecurities, with everything, everything. He can work in that if we're willing to relocate ourselves to humble ourselves for others' sake. This is Jesus' model to us. It's an incarnational model. He did it through relocation, and I would challenge us to consider how we need to be relocating ourselves this Christmas season. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father God, please keep setting us the perfect example. Keep speaking to us and showing us how to live it out. And may everything we do be done for your glory, be done for your name. We are not the Savior. We are just your messengers. We are not perfect. We are just hoping to pass your glory and your blessings on to whoever needs. We know we need, Father. And so we thank you first and foremost for loving us and pray that you show us what that looks like for the people around us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.